Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me as always is my producer, Kevin Black. Tonight's just a solo episode with yours truly. I try to do these about once a month when I update my big board in preparation for when we do a composite big board update over at No Ceilings. We release that board, recording this episode on Wednesday, November 9th. I mean, February 9th, excuse me. Um, so if you didn't see that board go up, that went up Tuesday, February 8th. Please go check that out over on the No Ceiling Substack, nocealings.substack.com. But in the meantime, you're listening to this podcast because you want to hear my big board 3.0. I've made some slight adjustments within the top 30 from last time. I think the bigger update is because we went 60 deep for our No Ceilings Composite Big Board. I also went 60 deep on my Big Board 3.0. So that means 31 to 60, we have a bunch of new players in the mix. Some names you've heard me at least mention previously when I've kind of given some honorable mentions in terms of guys who, if I was going to build out like a 31 to 45, I believe I had that extended section at the end on the last Big Board podcast that I did. So I'm not going to sit here and do deep dives on every single prospect. You've heard me talk about virtually all of these guys on other episodes of the Draft Deeper podcast. I'm sure you've heard their names on other draft podcasts, whether it be our No Ceilings podcast, the Draft Act, NBA Deep Dives. We have you covered on everything regarding the podcast front, as well as our written substack. Again, if you have not subscribed, please go do so. I was compiling a database over the weekend and kind of organizing how many players and prospects we've actually covered on those ceilings. We've covered 81 different prospects, either with an individual piece or they've been mentioned and written about in one of my morning dunk columns that goes out every Monday, for example. So we are blazing a trail for NBA draft coverage. I'm incredibly proud with the job that we've done over there. So please go subscribe to that. If you have not done so already, again, no silas.substack.com. But with that being said, let's jump into my big board. So we have a few changes that I made here. Let's start with the very top. So last big board update, I had Jabari Smith as my number one overall prospect. However, anybody listening to this podcast knows every time I talk about rankings, or a big board, you've heard me say, I refuse to have Chet any lower than number two. And the reason why I refuse to have Chet any lower than number two is because he is just such a unique talent that we really haven't seen anything quite like him before. Obviously, the closest thing would be Evan Mobley. He's, we're we're going to hear the Evan Mobley-Chet Holmgren comparisons a lot through the rest of this process leading all the way up to draft day. But I, I had to move him back to number one. Um, Jabari Smith has ha, really hasn't done much of anything to necessarily bring himself out of that number one conversation. He's still firmly in the race with my number three prospect, Paolo Bancaro. And as Sam Vecini and Matt Penny have talked about on the Game Theory podcast, for example, like they wanted to create a race for number one segment on their show because it's quite literally going to be a race up until – Draft day is what it seems like. These guys are just jostling for different positions each and every week. But I do these big board updates on a monthly basis. And it's not that Chet wasn't right there in terms of like a 1 and 1A already. But now that we've gotten more into the thick of conference play, now that Chet has, is much more comfortable at the college level, he is just putting up eye-popping numbers. I just want to read you off some of his conference play numbers. He's one of the guys that I'm going to touch on who I will read off statistical profiles for. Again, won't sit here and do this for the entirety of the podcast for every single player, but there are a few pit stops I want to make along the way reading out my rankings. So Chet Holmgren, conference play numbers, 17.4 points per game, 10.6 rebounds, 68.5% from the field, 60% from three-point range, almost 78% from the line, 3.3 blocks per game. He still has a 32.6 PER in the year. 98th in terms of total offense per synergy, 82nd in terms of total defense, 99th on putbacks, 98th in transition, 92nd on cuts, 82nd on post-ups, 70th on spot-ups, 83rd 
post-ups, including passes, 77th isolations, including passes, 69th on jumpers overall. That's really been one of the biggest upticks, as I, I referenced his three-point percentage of conference play. Still in the 100 percentile finish around the basket in the half court, 63rd on catch-and-shoot shots. And as a trailer in transition, this was one of the points that Sam Bassini wanted to note when he was on my podcast, is that there have been some concerns about him shooting the basketball from other areas in the floor at the start of the year. He's been a, a, an effective trailer big this entire time. And up to this point, he's eight for 14 on shots as the trailing big man in transition. So all of the numbers that I read off create an incredibly diverse offensive profile for Chet Holmgren. And when you, you, you flip on the tape, obviously you're going to see him handling the ball. You'll see him bringing the ball up the court in transition. You'll see him passing guys open. That's why I wanted to, to reference those two play types, including passes and how he rates out there. We know everything about the defense is one of these, arguably the most versatile defensive player in this draft class. Can switch out on the perimeter, can protect the rim. Even when he gets bodied down low, he still knows how to change, alter, and even block shots. It really does not matter when you throw at him in terms of physicality. He gets right back up. He gets right back into the thick of the action. When you, when you sit down and you think about it, I understand the reservations behind some people not wanting to put Chet number one overall. I think Chet's been pretty much the most consistent player ranked number one in terms of us over and no ceilings. But I wanted to move him back here because when you sit down and you think about his upside, right, what is this dude if he hits his ultimate apex outcome? We're talking about a double-double machine who is also going to throw in at his best passing, especially within an NBA system, probably like three to four assists per game. He's going to be averaging anywhere from two to four blocks per game, potentially. Likely at the NBA level, it won't be as high as like four. That That's definitely a much higher end. I'd say probably somewhere between like two, two and a half blocks per game. He's going to be incredibly effective finishing around the basket. Maybe not one-on-one -on -one in the post against certain bigs, but off of cuts, in transition. And then you factor in when he is hitting those jump shots, when he is providing spacing as a stretch big man. How do you guard Chet? You, you can come out, you can try to close out on him, but he, he's a much more fluid ball handler than if he gets credit for it. He can attack those closeouts, and he can either find a way to score the ball himself or he can dump it off to somebody else, cutting along the baseline or flashing out to the three-point line. He can just do so many different things on the court. I'm not going to let the body type scare me away from having him number one overall. I think he's the most skilled player in college basketball right now. And over the last month, month and a half, he's made, he's made an argument as the best player overall in college basketball. So I'm going to have Chet Holmgren number one. As I mentioned, Jabari Smith is number two. Again, he's done nothing to necessarily take himself out of the number one overall conversation. He's still in the thick of it. Just some of the things he does on offense, man. He really reminds me, and I've said this multiple times as well, but he really reminds me of Kevin Garnett in terms of being able to hit those face-up jumpers. How it doesn't matter how you try to contest this shot. He's shooting it so high over everybody else. It doesn't matter what you do to him. You're not bothering him. If those shots are falling, there's really no effective way you can guard him. I will say, last night in the game against Arkansas was probably the game that deterred me from him the most, although he did still make a number of impressive shots. He still had an impact of the glass on the defensive end. But when he's in those one-on-one -on -one situations, you do want to see him try and take his man off the bounce a little more, especially when he does have the size advantage one-on-one. -on -one. I understand if he immediately gets doubled off the catch, like there's only so much that he can do. Either he is going to try to rise up for that one dribble pull-up, or he's going to quick turn face jab, and then he's going up with a jump shot, or he's kicking it back out to somebody else. If he's doubled, I understand he only has so many options. But when he catches the ball, he can turn to that elbow area, and he gets a one-on-one -on -one matchup. You do kind of want to see him put the ball on the deck and either try and create something facing the basket, maybe take a few dribbles, repost position, and see what he can do from that perspective. You do want to see him try to do a little more with the ball in his hands when he's in those one-on-one -on -one situations. But that being said, the level of shot making at his size, his defensive versatility, when he does get the opportunities to pass the ball, like 
again, that package is just so complete for a 6'10 forward slash small ball five. You have to have him in number two. And then number three, Paolo Caro. There have been some people souring on, on Paolo a little bit. You've seen Jay Nivey, who's still my number four player, has snuck up ahead of some of these guys on some notable boards, Chad Ford's included. Chad moved Jay Nivey all the way up to number two. And look, I'm not going to do that. I think at the end of the day, with one of the top three picks in the draft, you have to take a swing with one of these three guys because size and skill is ultimately what's winning the day in the NBA. That's what more teams have driven towards drafting at multiple positions. And when you have three guys who are 6'10 or taller in this draft who are as skilled offensively and defensively, you have to take the swing on one of those three guys. So I'm just not going to bet against that size and skill advantage. Jay Nivey at four, though, has become a very interesting conversation. Look, he's not always putting up the, the prettiest outings in terms of shooting percentage, but when you just take a look at the film, how effective he is in transition, even in the half court when he gets that initial screen up top, he can be a blur getting to the basket. And I know he doesn't have much of a right hand. He's not an, he's not an ambidextrous finisher, but even when he's going – too much of a left hand, excuse me, but even when he's going right – when he's that quick off the bounce, that explosive, there's only so much you can do to stop him. Um, you really have to think about forcing the ball out of his hands in the half court or immediately trying to catch him and foul him in the transition because if you don't, he's going to find a way to put points on the board. And when he's hitting those open spot-up three-point shots, when he's able to, in that one game, I, I forget who the opponent was, but a few games ago, he hit that step-back three. Was it a travel yet? It probably was a travel, but... He just goes through his motions so quickly the, the, the refs weren't going to call it. And if he is able to convert on step-back shots like that from three-point range, I mean, what really isn't he bringing to the table at that point? His jump shot off the dribble is the weakest part of his game. He can be a more effective passer, although like I've talked about in previous podcasts, I think he's improved a lot on that front over the course of this year. What really isn't he bringing to the table? There's so much more to unlock with him as a lead guard. I think you kind of have to have him at number four. And it does not shock me that respected draft analysts in the community are pushing him even higher on their boards. Now, five and six get really interesting. Um, previously, I had Johnny Davis in the number five spot. I've actually moved A.J. Griffin ahead of him. And I just want to read off some of the statistics here, take a little pit stop, just a reminder of what A.J. Griffin is doing now. He is consistently playing minutes for this Duke team. He's averaging over 20 minutes per game on the year, so that number has clearly increased because he's gotten more starts, more playing time. Nine and a half points per game, three and a half rebounds, almost 52% from the field, still shooting 48.6% from three-point range. He's taking over three three-point attempts per game, 72% from the line, 22.7 PER at a 64 and a half true shooting percentage. And again, he hasn't been a starter full-time, but he's, he's still posting a 9.4 box plus minus. Um, 96, 98th, excuse me, in terms of total offense, 55th in total defense, the 100th percentile scoring off screens, 96th on cuts, 93rd in transition, 92nd on spot-ups. He hasn't been the most effective player scoring or passing out of pick and roll. That's definitely something he can continue to work on once he gets to the NBA level, to put the ball in his hands, give him some more Offensive responsibility, obviously he still has a few areas to grow, but 97th percentile on jumpers, 88th on runners, 96th around the basket, 98th on catch-and-shoot shots, 98, 91st, um, all jump shots off the dribble. So again, we're talking about 98, 100, 96, 93, 92, 97, 88, 96, 98, 91. What isn't he doing on the court offensively at this point? Is he the most natural passer of the basketball? Is he the most gifted player making reads out of pick and roll? No. Um, his IQ on the offensive as well as the defensive end, his understanding overall IQ for the game absolutely needs to continue to improve. But when you do factor in how many injuries he went through his junior year in high school, his senior year in high school, how he didn't get off to the greatest of starts even with Duke, because he got hurt in the preseason. The injuries are absolutely a concern. And I know me moving him up to number five, I've had this conversation on previous podcasts, most notably with Matt Penny when he was on, where we talked about, can we rank A.J. Griffin in the top 10 
not knowing whether teams are actually ranking him in the top 10. And it's easy for us to give a player a ranking and not think about the consequences of actually making the pick. But I really think the talent's becoming too hard to ignore at this point. And I, I, I would venture to guess that by now, at least a good number of NBA teams have A.J. Griffin in like that five, six, seven range. Um, on their draft boards, and I'm going to slide him all the way up to number five because when you just look at the total overall picture on both ends, you can just envision this Jimmy Butler type of guard wing, and I can't, I can't pass on that. I can't let that type of player slide any lower than five. I'm sorry. I understand the injury concerns, but I personally cannot let that happen. So I'm going to keep him in number five. Johnny Davis, I'm going to have him in number six. Thankfully, he bounced back. Last night against Michigan State posted an efficient 25 points against a really good Spartans team because in his previous three to five games, the numbers haven't been looking great from the field overall as he continued to shoulder, in my opinion, the heaviest burden of any other player in this top group, not named like a Keegan Murray at Iowa, for example. Yeah, he's shouldered one hell of a burden when you factor in what he has to do to carry that team offensively some nights, as well as on defense. He's generally guarding the other team's top perimeter option or their second-best perimeter option. It's not like he gets to play exclusively in zone defense, you know, kind of rove around in that corner, maybe make some plays, jump into a few passing lanes. He is on ball defending his ass off every single night. So when you think about the type of workload that he's had for Wisconsin, yet how effective he's also been at the same time, how that team has continued to win basketball games in the Big Ten, I'm going to give that player the benefit of the doubt. I know some people, like Tyler Metcalf, for example, would have him at number four, I believe, when he did his last big board update. I'm going to have him here at number six. I'm going to leave him here. I feel pretty good about it. Number seven, I I have Keegan Murray. Keegan Murray is another player who's risen on my big board from previous. I had him like late lottery. On my 2.0 update, he's risen all the way up to number seven. That really goes back into when, when I've talked on multiple shows now, when I got to see him in person against Rutgers. You see the size. You see how his body's going to continue to fill out. You see the strength base. You see the, the IQ, the physical tools. The, the jump shot mechanics look good. I think the jump shot's going to be a consistent weapon for him at the NBA level. Defensively, he is so incredibly smart. He rarely ever misses rotations. He can play defense one-on-one. He is a defensive playmaker as well. He averages over three combined steals and blocks per game. There's really not much that he can't do on the basketball court. Is he that sexy shot maker who's going to hit you with a bunch of combination moves, step back, and hit a tough jump shot all the time? No, but he can He can come off screens. He can work off handoffs, um, off the catcher in the elbow area. He's got a really good-looking mid-range shot. He can hit those open spot-up threes. I just love the full package that I'm getting from Keegan Murray in terms of him being a support player. But that type of starter is really valuable to have at the NBA nowadays, especially when you're trying to project these players out to who you feel can play important starting roles in a playoff series. And I think Keegan Murray is that P.J. Washington type of player where, no, his game isn't incredible from an excitement and a box office standpoint. But you just you're able to trust him playing big minutes, not making mistakes on the court, not making dumb decisions, just playing to his role, playing to his strengths, and overall being an effective player for a really good team. Um, number eight, I have Ty Ty Washington, the guard out of Kentucky. I talked about him multiple times on different podcasts about how he's impressed me. I know he had that injury about a week, week and a half ago. He's he's come back from that. He's been okay. He hasn't been great. But when he is on the top of his game, he's a shot maker from all three levels. He's been a much better passer this year than I could have anticipated. That 17 assist game obviously stands out in everybody's mind. And he's continued to hold his own on the defensive end. 6'3 guard with about a 6'8, 6'9 wingspan is what he's reported to have. So a guard who's not small with a plus six wingspan, who is as smart, as measured, as poised as he is on the offensive end, I'm going to take that player inside the top 10. Benedict Matherin, I have him at number nine. I considered him moving down, moving him down from this range because he has not been great shooting the ball from the outside. 
of late, he has really slipped in multiple areas in terms of shooting the ball from deep. But he has remained an aggressive scorer. He's remained effective at finishing around the basket, getting to the free throw line. Obviously, defensively, he's continued to maintain really solid effort. Is he going to be like a lockdown type defender in the NBA? Probably not. But I think he can be above average. He will certainly hold his own for the type of position that he'll play, which is somewhere in that two to three range in the league. I'm still betting on him being another really good complementary player in a different way than Keegan Murray, but similar in terms of if you're not asking him to do too, too much and he can just be a complimentary wing who can hit open shots, defend his position, get out in transition. I really like the type of package he could bring to the table as a lottery pick in this draft class. Um, Jalen Duran, number 10, the Memphis big. I have no idea what to do with Jalen Duran at this point. <laughs> I'm just being perfectly honest, probably speaking for a lot of people out there. We are not going to have the cleanest sample size in this draft class. It kind of just is what it is at this point. You have to bet on the talent, bet on what he did in high school, bet on the physical tools, bet that it will ultimately translate at the NBA level once he's given a little more time and attention in terms of his development. Hopefully he'll go to the right program slash NBA team for him. Um, 11, Patrick Baldwin, same thing. We're just not going to get a fair shake on the evaluation this year. We could nitpick his game to death. We, uh, I could have somebody on the podcast. We can argue back and forth. But I don't think this is really a player who – you can necessarily have a great argument about. I think you either you either evaluate him based on what he did in high school, um, what he did with Team USA, or you can get really granular about this year, nitpick some of the things he doesn't do well, some of the struggles he's had shooting the ball, and you can knock him down your board. I think this is one of those players, you either see it and you're willing to go to bat for him, or you don't. And I'm going to continue to go to bat for him. I'm not dropping him out of my lottery. Number 11 seems like a really good place for him. Number 12, I'm keeping Kendall Brown here. And Kendall Brown has been as high as number six on some of our boards here in those ceilings. He's earned dropping um, out of that top half of the lottery range, but I'm not going to drop him out of the bottom half of the lottery. And I just want to read some numbers for him. He, he, he really has not been as bad as some people want to make him out to be. Um, he's still averaging 10.1 points per game, 4.8 rebounds, two assists, 63% from the field, 38% from three-point range, 76% from the line, averaging a steal per game, 20.8 PER, 67.2 true shooting percentage, and he still has an 8.6 box minus. Um, 94th percentile in terms of total offense. You can pick him apart in certain areas defensively on film, particularly off the ball, but he still rates out in the 42nd percentile. Um, going back to some of the offensive numbers, 95th percentile in cuts, 86th percentile in transition scoring. Um, he has not been great as a spot-up shooter or a pick-and-roll operator in terms of scoring, but passing out of pick-and-roll sets when he's able to get that initial screen up top, get downhill, and make his reads and his progressions within those pick-and-roll sets. He's in the 91st percentile in terms of pick-and-rolls, including passes. So that's a massive swing between being asked to score out of those play types, which comes back to he's not the most confident pull-up jump shooter yet. So if he can't get all the way to the basket, that pull-up jump shot isn't quite a consistent weapon for him at this moment in time. That definitely lends to him not being the best scorer in those situations, but he's been a really effective passer in multiple areas, pick-and-rolls included. Um, 97 percentile finishing around the basket, but again, those jump shooting numbers – He's only in the 28th percentile on jump shots overall and the 24th percentile on catch-and-shoot jumpers. So really, his evaluation comes down to, A, do you buy the physical tools, which I think you obviously have to with him. He is an incredible athlete when you watch him on tape. And then, B, do you buy the playmaking and the passing, um, whether that's just quick decisions off a catch, he's immediately redirecting the ball, or you're putting him running plays like pick and roll? Do you, do you trust his playmaking instincts and his passing ability out of multiple different situations in the half court as well as in transition? I personally do. And then do you buy the jump shot coming around? Um, I've seen examples on film where the jump shot really hasn't looked that bad when he's kind of curled off of a screen, he's turned, he's faced the basket, and he's risen up and he's nailed a few jump shots. He's looked good when he's done that. And he's also had some moments where I thought the the – Jump shots from the corner didn't really look that bad either. He's just not hitting them at a consistent clip. And to be honest, this might very well just be an example of 
He didn't have to be a lights out jump shooter in high school because he's that big. He's that athletic. He could get to the basket whenever he wanted to at the high school level. So why polish something? Why polish a weapon that you don't necessarily need to have at that level? Um, there are some players that you see come up the ranks who believe in working on everything because at some point they're going to need it. I'm not saying that Kendall Brown isn't a hard worker in the gym and, and isn't dedicated to building out his craft. But at the same time, if he knows he's effective at doing certain things, why not play to your strengths? Um, which for the most part he's done in college at Baylor, but take a look at that Baylor team as well. He's playing with, he's playing in a guard center system He's playing next to guys like Matt Meyer. He's not the most aggressive rebounder with size, so it's not like he's going to balk out Flo Thamba or, or Jonathan Chamochachua to, to get offensive putbacks on the glass. Like He doesn't necessarily have a game that's meant to be takeover-esque for this Baylor squad. He's He is ultimately a complementary type of player. He's meant to fill in, not necessarily stand out at all times. I think that's why what he's doing at Baylor works. He's just not in a role to, he, first of all, I don't think he's the player who you look to him and you ask him to go take 15 shots per game and see what happens. I don't think he's that player first and foremost, but secondly, he's not really in a position at Baylor to play to that type of play style anyways. So if you evaluate Kendall Brown through all of that, through those specific contexts, I still think he's a lottery-level talent. I'm betting that there's more in his bag that he's capable of doing than he's done in college, and I think once he gets to the pros and he's he's given a little more creative freedom, he's given an opportunity to work on some more of these things, just continue to get repetition on things like the jump shot, I think he's going to be a much better pro than he's been a college player. I'm willing to bet on that upside because when you, when you just take a look, again, similar to A.J. Griffin, um, and, and Chet Holmgren, two guys who I definitely wanted to stop and talk about in, in this episode of the Big Board Podcast. When you just take a look at Kendall Brown's ultimate upside, how many players in this draft class truly have a higher upside than him? Guys who are above him. I, I don't think he has a higher – I don't think Benedict Matherin has a higher ultimate outcome. I don't think Ty Ty Washington necessarily has an ultimate higher outcome. Keegan Murray's a really, really, really safe bet to take in the top half of the lottery, but is his ultimate ceiling higher than a Kendall Brown's? No, he's not the same level of athlete. Um, is Johnny Davis's ultimate ceiling definitively higher than Kendall Brown's? I don't know the answer to that question. I think the top five absolutely have higher ceilings than Kendall Brown, but once you get to that like six range it was easy to envision why he jumped that high in the first place because this draft class is lacking depth in terms of star power in the bottom half of the lottery. So I would just feel really uncomfortable knocking him out. I've seen the other popular take where a lot of draft Twitter has come on and asked the question, are we sure Jeremy Sohan isn't the better player, the better prospect of Baylor between the two? I, I'm not ready to go that far either, although – I have moved him up considerably since my last big board update. I'll just give you a little bit of a, a preview. He's at number 18 on my board currently, but I'm not ranking him ahead of Kendall Brown and I'm not moving Kendall Brown out of the lottery. I think a lot of what we've talked about with him has been overreaction. I think he'll be a much better pro than he's been a college player. Um, similar situations with this guy as to Jalen Duran and Patrick Ball and Jane Hardy. We talked about Jane Hardy at length with Tyler Rucker and Corey Tulliba in a previous episode of the Draft Deeper podcast where Corey and I talked about our, our in-person visits with the G League 19. Now, I was not fortunate enough to see Jane Hardy when I went to see Ignite against Delaware, but Corey got to see him in person, and despite him struggling mightily from the floor in that particular game, him and I also went back and we watched some of the Ignite's previous recent games where Jaden Hardy has gone off and, and Rucker had the numbers on that very podcast where if you just look at Jane Hardy's last like five or six games, he's actually shot efficiently from the field. He's shot much better from three point range. You flip on the tape, they've simplified his offensive role. They're no longer asking him to run like 15 pick and rolls. Um, they're, they're having him come, come off movement, come off screens, playoff handoffs, catch and shoot shots. And when he's in that simplified offensive role, you see how easy it is for him at times to pour in those 25, 30-point nights. 
So if we're talking about like a buddy heel type of player or at his best outcome, maybe he's like a buddy heel plus. Cause I would buy Jane Hardy's ability to attack and finish at the basket much more than I would buddy heels. If that's the type of player we're looking at, I still think that player deserves to be taken in the lottery. So I'm going to leave him at number 13. Max Christie has come back into my lottery picture. Thank God Max Christie's come back um, into my lottery picture. He was not part of my top 30 on Big Board 2.0, and that's not because I don't buy the talent long-term. I want to be very clear about that. Players who are making their comeback into the top 30 on my board this time around, Max Christie at 14, um, Peyton Watson at 25, Usman Diang at 26. Why are these guys coming back into the picture? Because they've shown more flashes recently. And the reason why they needed to show those flashes was because if you base their draft stock off of their production that they had over the first few months, you don't know if there are going to be guys who are definitively in the 2022 draft class. And you start to speculate, are these guys who are going to be much better off going back to school, coming back in the picture for 2023? And for a decent amount of time, Max Christie looked like one of those guys. Peyton Watson was looked like one of those guys. Um, Diang looked like he was probably just going to stay over in uh, the NBL for another year, maybe come back into the draft. I didn't get the clear, confident picture on some of these guys. And it's good for Max Christie. He's been much better of late. Since December 21st, he's had 11.1 points per game, 3.7 rebounds, 46% shooting from the field, 48% from three-point range, and 80% from the line. He's been so much better um, since that first month, month and a half of the season, and he's played consistent defense virtually the entire time as well, both one-on-one, on and off the ball. So when you take a look at some of the guys who are behind him vying for this spot, you absolutely want to bet on, on Max Christie's upside. And I'm glad he's come back into the picture because I love six, six sweet shooting guards like him who we've seen potential of him on the ball, doing a little bit more off the bounce, his runner game around the basket. Once he continues to add on to his body, which again, he definitely will. He has the frame to keep adding size and, and, and bulk on. Um, he, he, he's a big six, six, that brother, that brother is big. He's long. I love everything he's bringing to the table physically. I think he's only going to continue to get stronger. That will help him bring his finishing numbers up around the basket. I'm buying on that talent long-term. I know Jonathan Wasserman, when I had him on the podcast, he was also somebody who refused to sell on Max Christie. Multiple people in those ceilings. Um, also did not want to sell on Max Christie. And I have him at number 14. I think he's going to remain in the lottery conversation from, from here on out. It's even if he takes another dip in terms of the production, I think we've seen enough flashes this year to where it's, it's hard to sell on, on somebody who does something as valuable to the NBA game as shooting in a variety of different play types. Number 15, Tari Eason. I've been back and forth on him. I've been back and forth on Marjan Beauchamp at number 16. I've been back and forth on Dyson Daniels at number 17. These guys are really in a clump together. I'm going to buy Tari Eason's defensive production. I'm going to buy how effectively he's been offensively. Do I love how he's getting his points offensively? Do I think that those same things are going to immediately translate in the NBA? No, I don't. I don't think he's as skilled offensively as the numbers and the production would tend to indicate. I've talked about that on multiple podcasts. But he has not slowed down. Matter of fact, he's only gotten better as the college season has gone on. He's starting for LSU. He's making an even bigger impact. I have to have a number 15. He's knocking right on that lottery door. I know multiple people in those ceilings have moved him into their lotteries. I have him knocking on the door. And then Beauchamp and Daniels are two players who I moved them down slightly to still reward guys like Kendall Brown and Max Christie and Tari Eason ahead of them but they're two players who still belong in that mid-first round to late lottery type of conversation. I loved a lot of what I saw in person from them for the Ignite team. I've talked about the, them both at length. I'm going to have them in this mid-first round part of the big board. Jeremy Sohan, I, I also just, just mentioned. 
look, it's not that I don't buy him long-term because I do. I think he's an effective player already right now, especially on the defensive end. He's shown an ability to hit some open jump shots when he's gotten the chance to. He's been a better playmaker in half-court situations than he's been given credit for. I just don't know if I've seen enough offensively to be like, okay, you're you're definitely a lottery player. Um, I think mid-first round is a great range for him. Could he climb into that lottery territory? He absolutely could. Um, but I think right now with where he's at, I think mid-first round is a great spot for him. So I have him at number 18. Number 19, Ochai Baji, another player who has definitely trended upward from pe- from previous big board updates. I had him pretty much in, in the 20s for the first two big board updates. He now climbs up to number 19, could potentially climb even higher. Certainly has his fans in those ceilings. Major media outlets are starting to warm up to him as a lottery type of prospect. I have him at number 19. Nikola Jovic, I have not dropped him out of the top 20 conversation. He sits there at number 20. He's been much better overseas of late. You've seen Tyler Rucker post about him for no ceilings. You've seen Mike Schmitz for ESPN put up multiple tweets um, showing some encouraging clips of his. I'm going to have him there at number 20. Number 21, Blake Wesley. I had him as high as like 15 or 16 a week ago, and he has been struggling. And, and I mean struggling. I, I did not pull his numbers to share on this podcast because I didn't want to depress myself and potentially drop him even lower. I'm still buying. I'm still betting on the 6'5 shot creating guard who's been getting better at playing pick and roll throughout the course of the year, who defends, I think, well enough on the ball. Does he still have a ways to go in terms of defending off the ball? Yes. Does he still need to get stronger to handle certain matchups playing up spots from point guard defensively? Yes. Does the jump shot still look funky, still look weird off the catch versus when he's able to kind of pop into his shot? Yes. These are all things I think he can iron out over time, though, and I'm going to bet on the long-term picture for Blake Wesley because we're supposed to be projecting with our big boards. I'm going to have him at 21. Caleb Houston has climbed a little bit back since the last big board update. I have him here at 22. He's been much better shooting the three ball over the course of the month of January. So I'm glad to be able to move him back up. He's been better defensively as well. So the picture for him being a projectable three and D prospect in the NBA at his size at six, eight with his length, it's becoming a much clearer picture than it was about a month, month and a half ago. I had dropped him down to the late first round on my board, similar with Christie and Watson um, and, and Diang, I just, I didn't know if Houston was going to be one of those guys who you definitively wanted to come out and say, yeah, we're confident projecting him to be in this 2022 crop. 23, Bryce McGowan, similar to those guys. I just hadn't mentioned McGowan's yet. Similar spot. I'm going to leave him here at 23. I'm betting on that talent long-term. I'm sorry. When you stack him up against the other prospects in this class, can you definitively say that if we're talking about top end to medium top end type outcomes. Like are we really going to sit here and say there are like 15, 16 guys in this draft class more talented offensively naturally than Bryce McGowan's? I'm not. Um, I'm going to buy into that offensive potential long-term defensively. He's been a bit of a train wreck this season for, for Nebraska. And I don't think I'm over exaggerating when I say that. I know he did not have a good defensive outing when Corey and I saw him against Rutgers in person, but I'm going to bet on him ironing some of those things out defensively long-term. He's not playing in a good defensive uh, system at Nebraska. So hopefully once he gets to the NBA level, he can continue to further develop, um, further his understanding of how to play defense both on and off ball. And with more consistency, more repetitions on the jump shot, hopefully we can see a better overwhelming offensive threat. Um, that, that I think McGowan's has the potential to be as a six, seven shot maker at, at the next level. New to the big board rankings, Justin Lewis, 24 for Marquette. How about, how about Justin Lewis and, and what he's really done for this Marquette team? If, if you've been reading my morning dunk column for no ceiling since the beginning, you know that Justin Lewis made it on the very first morning dunk full-length column. He was one of the first players I, I, I wrote about and talked about. And I know that guys like Chuck over at Chucky Darts have been high on Justin Lewis this entire length of the process, but he's really jumped out to me as somebody that we have to pay attention to and slot 
in the first round of a big board conference play in, in the Big East, 17.6 points per game, 8.1 rebounds, 44% from the field, 40.6 from three-point range, almost 75% from the free throw line. I talked about him with, with Max, uh, with Maxwell, uh, Maxwell Bomboards, who we had on this uh, previous episode of this podcast, how we were intrigued by his physical tools. He's 6'7", like 235 pounds, somewhere in that range. He's a more powerful type of forward than I think you would initially give him credit for. If you immediately flip on some of the YouTube highlights, you're probably going to see some of the jump shooting clips first and foremost, but he has really good footwork for somebody his size. And when he gets around the basket, he can bully down there a little bit. Um, and he can finish on the interior. He's getting better at being a pick and pop threat, pick and roll threat. Um, his passing, albeit he's been a little more creative this year, but some of those passes are still off errant. They're still um, a, a little careless at times. So passing is definitely something that he's looking to continue to improve upon. But players as young as him with jump shooting mechanics that I think will be able to project out over time, probably going to end up as like a 37, 38% three-point shooter in the NBA, pick and pop bigs who set screens as hard as he does, who can defend multiple positions. Is he the best defender in space? Probably not, but I would I would trust him to guard one-on-one, multiple different positions. He can act as like a pseudo rim protector, play him as like a small ball big in certain lineups. I still like the long-term potential um, for Justin Lewis, especially if he can, continues to improve as a jump shooter over time. I've talked about Peyton Watson, Usman Diang at, at 25 and 26. I've liked what I've seen from them of late. They've continued to show flashes at the end of the day. Late first round, you still want to bet on like the 6, six 8, 6, 9 guys who are skilled from the perimeter, who can operate and do things defensively around the basket. In the case of both Watson and Diang, they're still developing their passing craft, but there have been some flashes there as well. And then in Diang's case, I mean, listen, 6, 9 wings who can handle – and, and shoot the rock and pass like you, you just you, you don't want to let those guys ultimately slide too far even when I knocked him out of my top 30 if I would have been doing like a top 45 for big board 2.0 I would have had him in, in that early second round range I'm really going to knock him out too far it's not like I'm drastically dropping him to like the 40s or 50s um, even despite some of his poor play at least from the start for the New Zealand breakers I still have him in this late first round range because at the end of the day teams are going to want to take a swing on somebody and why not take a swing on somebody like Watson or Dang if they stay in the draft with, with their type of potential. And we, we really have to start projecting these guys out long-term. And that's why I'm going to have them in the late first round conversation. 27, EJ Liddell making his first appearance in the top 30 of my big board coming into 27 for big board 3.0. His numbers for Ohio state, man, you really can't ignore the type of production that he's putting up. Um, 19.9 points per game, 7.7 rebounds, 2.9 assists, 52% from the field, 40% from three-point range, 73.8% from the free-throw line, 2.6 blocks per game, a 32.4 PER, and a 62 true shooting percentage, um, 90th in terms of total offense, 94th on spot-ups, 84th on post-ups, 82nd in, in pick-and-roll as the ball handler. So a small ball big is what he's being projected as, yet he's handling possessions in pick and roll, and he's finishing in the 82nd percentile in terms of scoring out of those play types. Um, 80th in transition, 89th on putbacks, 69th percentile as a roll man in pick and roll sets. So not only can he handle the ball in those sets, he can also be um, the finisher within those play types, which is pretty unique in terms of what, what we find in this draft class. Um, 58th in isolation, um, 90th in pick and rolls, including passes. So again, not even just factoring in the scoring, he rates out even better when you fact in his ability to pass out of those situations. 77th on post-ups, including passes. 55th in isolations, including passes. 89th on jumpers. 58th percentile finishing around the basket in the half court. 86th on catch-and-shoot shots. 65th all jump shots off the dribble. Um, the only areas where he really struggles, he rates out in the 25th percentile scoring off cuts, which I don't know how much he's going to be asked to be a cutter at the NBA level, and then he rates out in the 29th percentile overall in terms of total defense. I don't always love what I'm seeing from that Ohio State team defensively, um, but he can absolutely be put in certain situations where he's not the most effective defender. He, he plays as a small ball big. I know he averages the 2.6 blocks per game, but 
you can go at him one on one. You can absolutely body him up down low. Um, I don't know how much I want him defending out in space if he gets switched on to a, a much quicker guard at the NBA level. I don't know if they're going to be able to exploit those matchups on him. He's not the most perfect defensive prospect, but in terms of what he can do offensively, he is so skilled. Um, Corey has thrown around the name Paul Millsap for for our no ceilings group. If he's any sort of like a Paul Millsap type of player, I mean, talk about the value you could be getting if you're drafting him late in the first round. It would not shock me if he's a guy who creeps up into that top 20 range on big boards, even by the time we do our next update, um, especially given the fact that he'll have a chance to really take that Ohio State team on a run in the Big Ten tournament as well as the NCAA tournament. So definitely wanted to get EJ Liddell in the first round of my big board. This time around, 28 and 29 are the two bigs, Walker Kessler and Mark Williams. I understand the argument for Mark Williams. I understand why some people have him in the higher 20s, why some people would have him in the late teens. I get it. He's he's not my cup of tea. I don't believe he is this all-world type of defender. I know the type of springy athlete he is at the position. I know how effective of a shot blogger he can be at times, but he just seems like one of those bigs. You can absolutely take him one-on-one, be it from the perimeter or down low. You can body into him, and you can score through him. Um, I, I don't think he's the same type of defensive big man that Walker Kessler is. Walker Kessler, you 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 can get around him at times. I'm not gonna not gonna paint the picture like he he has the quickest feet in the world. I know uh, Rutgers sometimes joked like he has cement holding his feet down, um, but you can't go over him and through him like like you could at times like a Mark Williams. Um, or, or some of the other big men that we can throw in this conversation. For example, Walker Kessler is a load down low, 11.6 points per game, 8.4 rebounds, almost 63% from the field, 20.5% from three-point range. Although he's been better his last few games, he's made it a priority, especially in, in January and now into February, he's made it a priority to take more three-point shots. He's, he's making some of them, which is really good to see. I think I buy the, the shooting mechanics long-term, 64% from the line. 4.3 blocks and 1.1 steals per game. Folks, that is 5.4 stocks per game. That's ridiculous. 32.3 PER, 65.2. True shooting percentage, a 14.6 box plus minus. Um, he's essentially incredibly effective on everything offense-wise around the basket. He doesn't rate out well. The jump shot portion of those offensive metrics per synergy, but again, it's something that he's working on. It's in his bag. I think it's going to be in his bag long term. And when you think about big men who can finish multiple different play types, who are as effective on the glass as well as um, on the defensive end overall, making plays, protecting the rim, playing passing lanes, I'm going to bet on Walker Kessler being the better big man out of the two. Do I have him trending upwards past 28 right now? No. I think late first round is a perfectly acceptable range for him. But I'm not going to put a ceiling on his draft stock, especially given how well Auburn has played. I know that um, they they lost a tough one the other night, but I, I fully expect Auburn to be in the thick of the NCAA tournament by the time when it's all said and done. I would fully expect them to be an, an Elite Eight or Final Four type of team. Auburn is that good. Walker Kessler's been their best player over the course of the entire year. Javari Smith is the better prospect between the two, but Walker Kessler has been the better college player for them this year. He's been this team's leader. He has been absolutely phenomenal. I've come around to Walker Kessler being a first-round pick. And then number 30, completely an upside name, but I think – once he continues to get more and more comfortable at the college level again after some of the injuries that he suffered, Alan Flanagan, the Auburn wing, the junior wing, has to be in conversation for the end of the first round. Um, 6'6 wing, skilled with the ball in his hands, can make passes, can make shots off the bounce, can hit open spot-up shots. Does he have much of a right hand? Is he ambidextrous? No, but he is that, that, that smooth, crafty left-hand type of scorer, playmaker, and he can hound you. Um, on the defensive end, he can guard multiple positions on the perimeter, one through three. So I really like Alan Flanagan's game and how it could translate to the next level. So I'm going to have him in number 30. Now we get into the second round. I'm not going to spend a ton, ton of time with some of these guys. Obviously, I'm going to 
spend the bulk of this podcast talking about guys in the first round, but we'll run through who I have in the second round, 31 through 60. Um, Kennedy Chandler, 31, has taken a little bit of a drop. I've talked about why on, on multiple podcasts previously. Um, Christian Brown and Jordan Hall are right there in terms of being first-round prospects. Christian Brown at 32, Jordan Hall at 33, respectively, just two really smart wing forward type of players who I feel their their size, their IQs, um, their toughness, their ability to do multiple things on the floor offensively, I think they're going to translate into um, good, at, at least good, solid to good role players um, in the NBA, possibly starters, which is why I, I toyed with back and forth with putting them in the end of the first round. I think they do have starter type of upside. Trevor Keels at 34, he's had an up and down year. Um, he just has not been the consistent type of shooter that you would want to see from him at his position. He's been a better passer and a better playmaker playmaker for others than I think I would have expected him to be this year. I've said that on previous podcasts, but he just hasn't been as consistent as I'd like him to be. And until he really starts canning in jump shots at a higher rate, I would have him in the early second round territory. I think he's he's really fallen from that like mid first round type range. Same with Wendell Moore. I had Wendell Moore as high as like 16 through 18. He was somewhere in that range on my last big board update. I've knocked him all the way down to 35. And really, it's not that his numbers have taken a decrease. He's still shooting just under 40% from three-point range. He has still been a really good ball handler for Duke overall. He's kind of been their de facto point guard. But gosh, I'll just watch a lot of these Duke games, man. And, and you just, you won't feel the impact of Wendell Moore on the level that you would expect to feel his impact if you're drafting him in like the top 20, for example. Um, I, I think that he had, he's going to be much better as a complimentary piece off an NBA team bench. than I would be com- comfortable projecting him as, as like a third or a fourth option definitively in the starting lineup. Um, but still, it's still an NBA player. Somebody could take a swing on him late in the first round. I have him um, at 35. Uh, Jan Montero at 36 has really slid for me. He's been even more of a casualty out of my first round than Kennedy Chandler has, but I watch him. Guys, I, I, I don't see it. I, I don't see starting point guard from, from Jan Montero. I think he, he struggles heavily with size. He is not a vertical threat at the point guard position. He does not get up well off the ground. Can he hit open jump shots? Yes. Can he make some exciting passes both in the half court as well as in transition? Yes. But he just seems like one of those guards who's much better suited to come off the bench, be a change of pace. Um, if we're making a bet on one of those two guards who dropped into my second round territory to be a starter in the NBA long term and have sort of like a Jalen Brunson type arc to their careers, I would much rather bet on Kennedy Chandler. And I have my issues with him as well, but I think that overall he has a much better feel for the game and he's a much better defender um, between those two. So I'm going to have... Kennedy Chandler there, like I said, at 31. Jan Montero at 36. Hugo Basson at number 37. He's been averaging 13.8 points per game for the Breakers, 4.4 rebounds, 1.2 assists. He's a 6'3 guard combo who, if we're not projecting him as this guy who's definitively going to come in and make everyone else around him better and be a playmaker like that that first guard, that, that point guard type off the bench, and he's also not going to be a flamethrower scorer coming off your bench either. I don't know why I would project him in the first round at this point. Um, he's only been shooting 39% from the field over in New Zealand, 32.9% from three-point range, 806 from the line. You always want to see a high free throw percentage. That can be encouraging to projecting out long-term shooting, but only a 51.9 true shooting percentage. I'm not buying that type of player right now, given where the game is going in the first round. Will I take a flyer on him in like that early second round territory? Maybe he can be a more effective microwave scorer in the NBA than he's been as a starting guard overseas. I uh, yeah, I can take that bet, but I'm I'm not gonna bet on that type of player in the first round right now. Harrison Ingram at 38, he is one of the most divisive prospects in this class, along with somebody beneath him, um, JD Davison for Alabama, the, the guard at number 39. But Harrison Ingram in particular has been a really divisive prospect throughout this entire process. I get I get the, the, the defensive versatility. I get the high IQ. I get the passing flashes. I get it. Um, but I don't buy his overall athleticism. I don't buy his ability to score the basketball effectively at any level right now, including around the basket. I don't think the, the touch is the best. 
Have we seen examples on film of him hitting a few hook shots? Have we seen him hitting some open jumpers? Yes. Is he somebody who we can bet on long-term to develop and hopefully outperform his draft stock if he is taken in this range? I think so. But just given some of the options I would have to be able to draft ahead of him, I would rather take bets on some of those guys. I hope he proves me wrong. I hope he is better than the 38th best player who I have him ranked, have him ranked as right now. I'm just not comfortable taking him higher than this right now. Um, and, and same with J.D. Davison. I hope J.D. Davison goes back to school. He has not had a good season. Um, he, he's had some moments, but in terms of an overall year for Alabama, he has not been great. Um, and matter of fact, he's been even less effective when he's been put in some starting type of situations when he's had to sort of fill a spot for one of the other two guards in front of him. I, I do not feel comfortable projecting J.D. Davison right now as a starting NBA point guard. I struggle to find what his role is right now, even coming off the bench. Like the type of player I would have loved to project him as would be like a Kobe White type of microwave scoring guard, but he is nowhere close to being the shooter that Kobe White is. And if we're putting passing chops next to each other, I would take uh, Kobe White as the better passer between the two as well. So I just I, I don't know what J.D. Davidson's going to do in the NBA if, if he enters his name into the draft. I, I get the 6'3 size. I get the length. I get the athleticism. I get the motor. I, I, I get that. And J.D. Davidson, this hurts me because I loved him before the season started. I really wanted to project him as the best league guard in this class. Matter of fact, after he did some of the exciting things um, on the court at the beginning of the year, I wrote – a morning dunk column based around him as the lead section asking is JD Davison the best point guard prospect in this class. And basically since I wrote that he's done every single thing possible to prove me wrong that he's not. And now it's gone so far as to knock him out of the first round. So that is Kennedy Chandler, young Montero and JD Davison. I have them all out of the first round on my board because I just think with the way this draft class has ended up with where the NBA is going, I would much rather take a bet on one of the bigger guards or one of the wings or forwards with size, length, scoring versatility, and defensive versatility than I am one of these types of guards. Um, 40, Ismail Kamagate, the Paris center. Man, is this dude fun to watch. He may absolutely end up higher. On, on my next board update, the more and more film I, I get to watch on him. I, I have watched, I've watched the game and I've seen some highlights. So I'm not at like that three, four game threshold with Kamigate that I am as, as some of these other prospects that I've ranked higher, who I feel more comfortable in, in putting a grade on right now. But what I've seen from Kamigate, I am absolutely intrigued. We've had multiple people write interesting articles about him at no ceilings. Tyler, that was one of the first, um, foreign relations pieces that Tyler Rucker did. Tyler Metcalf did a really interesting skill breakdown on him offensively. There's a lot that I think he could be capable of doing in time. I think he could be a mid-range shooter in time. I think he could be an effective passer from the big man spot in time. We know what he can do finishing around the basket. I pulled some of his numbers, what he's doing right now. 10.8 points per game, five and a half rebounds, one and a half blocks, 67% shooting from the field, one and a half blocks per game a 20.6 PER in the league he's playing in right now, and a 70% true shooting percentage. I know that he's not playing in a league overseas that's going to light the world on fire, but he is producing at a very effective level, and you see the flashes on film, and you start to wonder, what could that look like in the NBA if he actually reached close to his apex? Um, even, even his medium range outcome absolutely serves as a backup center in the NBA, just given where the game's going now in terms of versatility at size. So he could absolutely keep climbing up my board, but I have him at 40 right now. Josh Minot at 41. I've talked about him at multiple points on this podcast, most notably with Jonathan Wasserman. He climbed up um, into Jonathan Wasserman's top 50 the last time he updated his big board. And I think deservingly so, he deserves to be in the top 45. He has arguably been <laughs> Memphis's best freshman player. If we're going to be perfectly honest, Imani Bates has not been good for Memphis. Now he's basically out for the rest of the year. Um, Duran is technically the better prospect of the two, but I could absolutely argue when both of them are on the court, Minot has certainly had moments where he's been a more effective player on the court this year. 
um, than Duran. So I'm going to have mine out here at 41. Alondez Williams, the Wake Forest guard. I've talked about him before. I've been posting about him on social media. I talked about him with Maxwell as well. One of my favorite prospects to watch in this class. I flip on the film. I see a guard who could potentially come in and impact the game, sort of like what I have assumed was doing for the Chicago Bulls. Um, there, there's not much that Alondez can't do on the court from an ability standpoint. Do you have to rein him in? Can he make better decisions with the ball in his hands? Can he be a more effective catch-and-shoot player? Absolutely. There are things that he needs to work on. But just from a natural talent perspective, there's not much he can't do on the court offensively or defensively. And he's he's certainly an above-average athlete. He has above-average size for that point guard, combo guard type of position. And if you had to put a gun to my head and, and make me choose between one of those three other point guards that I named ahead of him right now in the second round or Alondez, which one would I rather have on my team if I was the decision maker? I know those three other guards have more long-term potential in theory because they're younger than Alondez. I think I'd rather have Alondez on my team. I, I, I really do like him. I know Metcalf and I went back and forth the one day and we were asking ourselves, why are we ranking some of these other point guards ahead of Alondez? Why isn't Alondez in that early second round, late first round type of conversation? I even asked that question to Sam Pacini and Matt Penny on, on one of their mailbags. And I think Matt was, was coming around a little more to him being like a top 45 type prospect. Sam wasn't buying him at the time. I don't know if their opinions could have changed up to this point, but I'm leaving him in this top 45 type range. I absolutely love watching him. Um, and then really this range of players here, that that's really about as far as it goes in terms of me having strong opinions about some of these guys. The rest, I have them ranked 43 through 60. This order is nowhere near set in stone. Um, we can obviously debate where I have some of these guys ranked, but I'll just read some of these names off. This is really who I see the names deserving to at least be in this range right now. So I have 43, Jaime Jaquez, 44, Julian Champagny, 45, Mike Miles, uh, Michael Foster at 46, Travion Williams at 47, Aminu Muhammad at 48, Darion Sebron at 49, Jabari Walker at 50, Young Jung Lee, uh, no ceilings no favorite son at 51, Iverson Molinar at 52, Christian Coloco at 53, Jake LaRavia, who's had a, a, a pretty impressive stretch the last few games for Wake Forest at 54. He's a favorite uh, amongst multiple people on draft Twitter. I could absolutely move him up again. Like I said, this order, this order is nowhere near finalized. Um, Alex Fudge at 55, Jalen Williams at 56, Matt Cleveland at 57, Musa Diabate at 58, Yannick Sosa at 59, and Isaiah Mobley at 60. Again, 43 through 60. That order is not finalized so do not hold me to because i have one of those players ranked at that position could they end up higher than 43 on this big board by the time it's all said and done absolutely could some of these guys not even be in the draft by the time 2022 rolls around and, and these guys have to make decisions on whether to stay in if they declared absolutely we have no idea where that portion is going to go but those are the 60 guys that i have in the picture for me Right now, I do technically have more names in an honorable mention range. I have about 16 guys after this 60 who I would be able to interchange and swap in should some of these players not ultimately stay in the draft. 17, if Shane Sharp decides to pull a fast one on everybody and go against what John Calipari came out and said the other day, that he, as far as he is aware, the plans are for him to not play this year and then come back and play at Kentucky next year. If Shane Sharp decides to pull a fast one and ultimately put his name in the draft, I would have had him at number seven um, on my big board. But we made the decision as a no ceilings collective to leave him off of our boards because not everyone felt comfortable in ranking him at this time, just given some of the information that was out there about whether he was actually going to be in or not. And then Calipari put the tweet out and made our lives a lot easier by basically telling us we shouldn't be ranking him on a big board and looking at him as a 2022 draft prospect right now. So if we're throwing him in there, about 17 names, I'm still watching outside of this 60. But that's going to do it for this episode of the Big Board Podcast. Again, when this episode goes live on the feed, I will make sure to share on Twitter as well as Facebook a link to this episode when it goes live. and. I'll be commenting on those links um, with the actual physical copy 
of my big board so that you guys will have that in front of you as you follow along and listen to this podcast. So if you're seeing this posted on social media, definitely have the, the, the visual big board up in front of you so you understand where I'm going, where I'm navigating throughout this episode of the podcast. Um, if you have not subscribed to this show already, please do so. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you listen to your podcast, we're there. I would love to have you on board the rest of the way. If you aren't following me on Twitter to get that update and to see that physical board when it goes live, please go follow me on Twitter at DraftDeeper. Rest of this week, we're going to have Matt Issa on the next episode of the podcast. We're going to talk about some of the NBA rookies. We're going to properly go through my rookies column with somebody who's watched far more NBA basketball than I've gotten to this year. So that will be really exciting for me to have him back on the podcast. He did a great job first time around when we went through some of our preseason award predictions for the NBA. Um, one of the best NBA minds that we have out there. I'm so glad to see him freelancing for places like uh, basketball news. He deserves to be doing it. He's an, he's an awesome follow, awesome individual. Um, that's, that's the roadmap for, for the rest of this week. But until we come back, thank you all again for listening. I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week.